0: On Wednesday, 22nd of March, 2023, Wellington College invited its sixth form politics students, along with students from local schools, to participate in a conference on topics surrounding contemporary challenges in global politics. Arguably the highest profile topic at the conference was the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and we were fortunate enough to welcome Dr. Vlad Micanenko from the University of Oxford to host a Q&A with students on this topic. Dr. Micanenko is a human geographer specializing in geographical political economy an associate professor at the Department for Continuing Education and a research fellow at St Peter's College, University of Oxford. After a brief summary of his personal view, he opened the floor up to questions from students on the future of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The first question for Dr Mikanenko was on whether there could be a peace treaty, and if there could, then what that treaty might entail. I've just seen a
1: little clip uh, on Telegram of the Russian Minister of Defense yesterday, going after the Chinese delegation's dinner, and the Russian journalist asked him uh, exactly, well, first half of that question, and the Russian Minister of Defense said, oh, all wars end in peace. So this is one thing I can agree with him, that obviously this war, as any other war, will have to end one way or another. Uh, I think the nature of the treaty itself and the nature of the settlement. Yeah, let's let's see if it is a, you know, we don't know whether it is a treaty or not. A a lot of this will depend on the nature of, and the nature and the manner of the Russian defeat. Uh, I've been working with, you know, a lot of people will probably ask uh, or thinking, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard about various threats. Uh, from the Kremlin uh, about the nuclear weapons and, and how uh, some type of uh, weapons are escalatory or not. Um, so uh, I'm working with about three different scenarios, uh, which I'm happy to share with you, uh, if anyone is interested.
0: The second question was on what the international reaction to the conflict had been in countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, and whether Dr Mikanenko thought their reactions had been shaped by their former ties to Russia. Yeah, so
1: uh, there were 15 constituent republics of the Soviet Union, right? Uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are in the European Union and NATO and they were the strongest and are the strongest not just helpers of Ukraine, uh, but also vocal supporters of Ukraine. So uh, three of those uh, former Soviet member states have been the strongest to advocate um, supporting Ukraine both within NATO and the European Union. Uh, Moldova and Georgia, uh, the other two non Russian sort of aligned countries, have been less vocal, uh, formerly even neutral. Example, Moldova has taken uh, quite a few Ukrainian refugees during the war. Uh, Georgia taking quite a few russian refugees those people escaping mobilization however both georgia and moldova have not been very vocal uh, in terms of support they haven't got enough funds financial assistance to provide and they haven't got any armies to help us with the weapons so that's already recovering five right the rest of the soviet space apart from turkmenistan uh, are in alliance with russia uh, either economically through the uh, european eurasian economic union all through the um, kind of a, a military defensive alliance, and those countries have been very quiet. So, on on on, on the positive side side of things, uh, I could say that they were they are not providing uh, any military support uh, to Russia. Uh, Kazakhstan allegedly is helping through some grey zone imports and exports. Uh, is allegedly helping. To bypass some of the sanctions, uh, however, uh, formally speaking, Kazakhstan and especially um, Kazakhstan new president uh, denounced the Russian uh, recognition of the of those Eastern European Eastern Ukrainian territories as part of Russia. So, apart from the three uh, member states that are currently in the EU, uh, we have sort of a quiet quiet pro-Ukrainian position on 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 the side of Moldova, uh, Georgia and probably Azerbaijan as well. Azerbaijan has been helpful uh, in with some humanitarian supplies although not military supplies. And then the rest of the countries are formally in alliance with Russia, but they they were keeping they are keeping very quiet and they were not they're not helping Russia uh, most you know on almost any, any any front.
0: The third question concerned Russia's attempts to keep friendly ties with Belarus and Kazakhstan, particularly with Belarus helping Russia in the conflict, Dr. Mikanenko was asked what the international implications of this could be.:
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, I got that one. So Belarus is, 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 is formally involved uh, in the war given that Belarus provides Russian army with space uh, both well it provided the russian army with the space to launch the attack the invasion on the 24th of february 2022 and you've seen from the maps quite a lot of of the troops went from north from belarus so it is a part of the uh of uh, if informally it is a part of the war but also russian uh belarusian airspace and airfields uh occupied by russian uh fighter jets and bombers which russia uses regularly to attack ukrainian cities uh so belarus uh is Involved in the war. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko uh, managed to resist Putin's attempt to use the Belarusian army, uh, 35,000 people, as far as I know, uh, to be formally kind of involved in the war. So Belarus have, have have refrained from using its own armed forces in the war, but it provided Russia with space. Uh, to launch the attack, with space to launch air attacks, air assaults, but also it's provided, as you, as you mentioned, Russia, with a lot of military equipment, with a lot of uh, ammunition, a factor there, they're trying to give everything that they have uh, to Russians, probably to avoid being conscripted into this war themselves. Kazakhstan has uh, managed to wriggle itself out or of, of, of russian embrace back in february or january 2022 about two months before the russian invasion of ukraine there was a turmoil in kazakhstan with a lot of riots in in various cities including almaty um they were they were crushed by by a combination of of local forces but also by russian uh and and all the other allied states because uh, armenia kyrgyzstan um uh, uh as well uh, and and so and that at that period, as as far as we know, uh, Kazakhstan has managed to make uh, a deal with China, uh, and China has now informally provided support to Kazakhstani government, uh, and effectively Kazakhstan has now enjoying uh, informal uh, defense uh, from from China, uh, which which I'm surely is not uh, the pleasing news to anyone sitting in the Kremlin at the moment.
0: The fourth question addressed the arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin and whether Dr Mikinenko thought that it would be successful.
1: Well, as you know, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction uh, over 134 countries in the world out of you know, 220 territories. So that is already uh, quite a lot of space to cover. Uh, We've already heard the news from South Africa that, that uh, the G20 meeting uh, uh, next one will be in, in, in South Africa, and South Africa is signed up to international criminal court, uh, the, the Rome Statute. And so it'll be quite intriguing for us to see what happens, whether President Putin decides to travel to South Africa to risk uh, being arrested by the ICC uh, or not. That is, that is, that is you know, a, a happening as, as we speak. Uh, it is undoubtedly uh, the, the arrest warrant for war crimes, uh, for alleged war crimes, uh, against president putin and and one of his uh uh helpers in in war in war criminal activity has damaged dramatically putin's standing uh internally yeah against the local elites because now effectively they are working for a war criminal or alleged war criminal and effectively now they also can think of what happened to them uh if if this proceeds the way it is proceeding uh and so I think uh you know even 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 the uh the three-day state visit by uh, Chairman Xi Jinping uh, that happened uh, that finished today, earlier today, uh, and Xi Jinping visiting Moscow and praising uh, dear friend Vladimir for various things. Even that, I think, will will not really help to restore his his prestige uh, globally and definitely um, domestically as well.
0: The fifth question brought up the topic of the refugee crisis that the conflict has created, and Dr Mikinenko has asked what he thought would happen to those refugees at the end of the conflict.
1: Yes, uh, well, well, I think the overwhelming feeling is that people want to go back because they're they're here not not on their own volition. Yeah, that, That's that's a forced migration. They're forcibly displaced. They wouldn't be in, in, in Oxford or in, in Birmingham if it wasn't for the war. Uh, my own family uh, are displaced in in, in various lands, uh, and both my parents uh, currently in Lithuania, and my my brother, three children here in England. They they all you know, I already stopped them several times from from coming back too early, saying you know just just wait a little bit further for for maybe you know uh, maybe the Russians run out of missiles and rockets uh, etc. So I think there is a lot of uh, desire or of, of force. For, for forcefully displaced people to go back to Ukraine. Uh, obviously, some people will stay, especially those that have um, you know, no, no particular attachment, single single um, individuals with no children uh, or no particular big families back home who got jobs in, in, in Western Europe, probably they will stay. Uh, because it's quite, it's quite an intriguing opportunity for some people. But I think the majority of people, especially families with children, ninety-three percent of Ukrainian refugees, as you know, are children uh, with ch- women and children, uh, and so their fathers, their their sons, their brothers uh, are, are fighting or, or are in Ukraine, and and for family reunification reasons, obviously those people will have to um, to go to go back. So I think the majority of people will leave as soon as things will, will settle and hopefully, if the Ukrainian long-awaited offensive proceeds uh, well enough, I think by the end of summer we will see some, some people starting to return a little bit more uh, seriously than, than we've seen so far. The figures are immense. you are talking about 7 million people in Western Europe. Yeah.
0: The sixth question followed on from the previous musings about Putin possibly being arrested and pose the idea of whether the regime that would come after him in this case would continue with the war, or if they are only continuing because of Putin and would therefore look to end hostilities.
1: Yeah, so what we need to look at at a few things. Uh, First of all, is capabilities, right? Uh, So what we know now is, is, as of today, uh, Russians have lost 170,000 soldiers, Uh, Russians have lost all the tanks that they've started the war with, is there any any people in the room that play World of Tanks? Uh, show me the, the hand. Uh, I'll, I'll throw you some 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 titles of the tanks. But effectively, uh, we started with, uh, with the with invasion with they started invasion with 3,400 tanks. A lot of them were very brand new T90, T80, T72 modernized tanks. Uh, as I'm sure some of you have seen earlier today, uh, on various social media channels, uh, there was a train coming from far east with t-54 and t-54 is a tank that that is the son of t-34 uh, second world war tank which was which was stopped production was stopped uh well before even i was born uh and effectively they started the production of that tank in 1947. so effectively they're drawing the last of the last resources that they have the tanks that even the, you know uh, we didn't know that they, they, they still exist and can still roll um, so i think that 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 constrains a lot of um a lot of possibilities whoever comes comes next will have a really limited amount of, of resources to deal with so even one wants to proceed the same way as as Putin has been proceeding you know you, you're down by by 3500 tanks already and also you obviously you've lost enormous amount of most capable troops as well so wh- whoever comes next will have a really limited uh, resources to play with and that, that will inde- definitely will affect their behavior and, and presumably will affect their calculus.
0: The seventh question asked whether the conflict would lead to NATO expansion. Well yes of course it will lead to NATO expansion. It already has led to NATO
1: expansion. We have Sweden and we have Finland joining up as we speak uh, and that effectively will make the Baltic, uh, the Baltic Sea an internal NATO sea uh that will effectively will, will 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 knock off the the baltic sea fleet of the russian naval naval force quite dramatically uh, and eventually of course ukraine will join nato because that's that was the aim of the country since since 1993 1994 uh, and uh, obviously uh the, the russian defeat uh will only help will only help ukraine to join nato as well so i think those those three countries the, the, the two countries already mentioned are joining as we speak, and Ukraine will join uh, eventually uh, after the war is over. I mean, that's, that is, I think, is fairly clear to me at least.
0: The eighth question considered whether there was a difference in treatment of Ukrainian refugees compared to refugees from similarly war-torn countries in Africa.
1: So what happened, legally speaking, is that, uh, although we, we all speak of these people as refugees, uh, legally speaking, they are they're different types. Right. Uh, legally speaking, both in the European Union and also in the UK, uh, Ukrainian forced migrants are having temporary protection uh, in the EU under the temporary protection directive that has never been applied before. and it's the first time uh, the European Union is applying the temporary protection directive and this is the protection uh, this is the, the temporary protection as they speak to give protection people for uh, and for a limited period of time. And so Ukrainians in the UK, or uh, anywhere in the European Union are having a three-year, effectively a three-year guaranteed stay, uh, which is very different from asylum seekers uh, and refugees from from other places, which which are which which are applying and going through a very different legal route of, of, of seeking asylum indefinitely, yeah. right? So, well, though those two are, are big legal differences, but of course the numbers also are quite different. We're talking about. Uh, you know hundreds of thousands and maybe a million uh Syrian uh plus refugees that that landed in in Germany and Austria in 2014 15 uh versus you know 7 7 plus uh millions of Ukrainians temporarily displaced in western europe so the, the numbers are, are huge and different uh the treatment is also different legally uh and of course it, it, it we have to say that the 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 treatment is also different because uh, as as far as i can see uh the the Western Europeans and and the Brits uh, and and everybody else uh, have taken the the Russian-Ukrainian war and the Russian invasion much more closer to their hearts. Is it because it is geographically closer? Perhaps is it because it reminds you of of the Second World War disasters? Probably too. Uh, uh, and and is it because that people are are European and much close culturally, religiously, etc, Probably too. So so there is a. Both legally a different uh, treatment, uh, and and also emotionally, psychologically a very different treatment as well, as far as I I can I can feel.
0: The ninth question concerned Dr. Mikonenko's thoughts on the announcement of 30,000 new troops for the Wagner Group and its impact on the conflict. Uh,
1: so the Wagner Group, uh, which is a kind of a a shadowy of the book uh, special forces originally special forces. Uh, military Regiment that the Russian military intelligence set up in, in 2014 to fight the the invasion in the Donbas have expanded uh, To their operations to occupy bits of Africa uh, in a very uh, dramatic uh, And very colonial uh, imperialist way uh, And and gradually they they've decided to enroll them uh, in the invasion of, of, of Ukraine now uh, as, as 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 you know uh, they've managed, they've been allowed to recruit in Russian prisons, uh, especially in high security prisons. And they have managed to get uh, over the last 12 months about 50,000 most vicious, horrible people, murderers, rapists, child abusers, cannibal. There's a legal, um, there is a evidence of that as well. Uh, and of those 50,000 uh, convicts who were given pardon by Johnny Wagner, despite, you know, people serving life sentences. They're giving pardon as long as you fight for six months. Uh, out of those 50,000, only 10,000 are, are alive. As we speak, 40,000 are, are gone either dead or deserted or horribly injured and not coming back. Uh, the Russian uh, Minister of Defense have realized that there are uh, some opportunities in Russian prisons to capture uh, people and send them to the meat grinder in Bakhmut. And uh, the Russian military uh, minister of defense are themselves recruiting now Russian prisoners uh, as well for their own regiments. And therefore uh, the Wagner's uh, announcement of of needing extra 30,000 people is very fanciful because uh, it is probably impossible for them to find even a few thousand now. Uh, people ni- either in prisons uh, or elsewhere, because everybody knows that life expectancy of the Wagner fighter uh, is is what about three days, and I think a lot of people will probably think that the the two million rubles you get um, when you're dead probably is not worth not worth those um, not worth the
0: fight. Finally, Dr. Mikinenko is asked for a final takeaway regarding the Russia-Ukraine conflict.
1: I think the last soundbite is that, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, your generation, are other generation that have to, will have to fight for democracy and freedom. Uh, we can see obviously that there are forces in the world that have gathered enough strengths, uh, and enough numbers to challenge, um, the, the, you know, the fundamentals of, of, I don't want to speak too highly, but of the Western civilization. And, and I'm afraid. Uh, this is the time that we'll have all to pull our uh, socks up, a uh, soldier on, and help to defend uh, the values on which uh, our lives are built on.
0: After Dr. Vlad Mikanenko's Q and A session, he was gracious enough to grant us an interview. Paul Dunn, head of politics at Wellington College, followed up on some of the points that Dr. Mikinenko raised during the session.
2: Okay. There. There.
0: Excellent. Okay.
2: Well, I'll do a brief introduction then to you, and then we'll just start the questions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Uh, Vlad Mahenko from the uh, of Oxford University, an expert on the Russia-Ukraine conflict and that region in general. Uh, and uh, just a brief introduction to you. How would you describe yourself? You said in the in the original talk that we had recorded for our students that you are a a human geographer. Uh, was how you described yourself. So if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and then what you were talking about in terms of the, uh, how the conflicts between Russia and Ukraine has played out and how it might play out in the future. Brilliant.
1: Uh Thank you, Paul, thanks for inviting me. Uh, so uh, I studied international relations for my undergraduate degree. Uh, and also I did two postgraduate degrees in international relations and European studies. And I must say, and this is maybe not it will not be popular with your students. I felt somewhat disappointed in international relations and a discipline uh, when I was a student. I felt it's far too abstract, too far away. It's so incomprehensible in a way that it doesn't relate to my life. And and from then on, I started sort of going down the scale. If, if, if you wish. From kind of Europe, from international relations to European studies, from European studies to regional studies, uh, I did a, a, a doctorate on post communist transition, but, but comparing to all industrial regions, and I felt for me it was much easier to deal with it because you know, we can walk into a city we can travel to a region we can touch it we can feel it we can smell it uh, we can photograph it i felt you know in terms of field work for me in terms of empirical sort of data gathering uh regional subnational studies was much more much more intriguing and i moved on sort of down the scale to cities uh and started studying cities because in those places that i uh started for my phd in places like Donetsk, in Eastern in, in Ukraine, in Katowice, in, in, in Silesia, in Poland, uh, yeah, the first thing you notice, of course, in the industrialization, the chronic stress of demographic change, low fertility, out-migration, and effectively shrinking cities. And so I've spent probably almost 20 years now, uh, I dare say, on studying shrinking cities and trying to understand how cities adjust, adapt to these big, big challenges that they face, in particular, the chronic stress of Ginda Association and demographic decline. Uh, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the war, uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought up kind of the sudden shock, uh, part of the of, of urban resilience. Uh, and so I'm trying now to, to figure out how to deal with the way cities manage to survive, some of them don't, of course, but those that are not totally annihilated, how they manage to survive and bounce back from, you know, from bombardment and more damage. Uh, similar in some way to, to cities I studied uh, previously in Japan that were devastated by the uh, 2011 Great Eastern Japan uh, tsunami.
2: Excellent. So I, really interestingly, again, then we talk about what's happening in Ukraine. What's the blueprint for a place like Mariupol, for example? What's the blueprint for that city now? How does, how does you know, it seems incomprehensible to me, I, you know, bringing, uh, you know, going there would be like bringing a, a, a dustpan and brush to an earthquake. I don't know how you would begin to rebuild that. What, what, what is the blueprint for that? That's, that's, that's a good question,
1: well, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, what we've seen, uh, well, there are, there are a few things. First of all, I think as, 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 a, as a human geographer, as a climate geographer, uh, and I, I have, I've, apparently, I've been quite controversial at a recent conference on rebuilding Ukraine when I said that some of the cities will never be rebuilt, uh, and, and some of cities may not, well, definitely will not be built the same size. Uh, but we need to remember that cities exist for a reason. Cities have reasons to exist. They're, a special agglomeration of economic activities of firms, of households, organisations that are clustered together for a particular reason, and, and usually it is economic activity. So, of course, if you devastate, if you destroy two largest steel mills on which your city is built, and effectively those steel mills are, are the reasons for which city actually existed, then of course you've got you've got to rethink quite dramatically what you're going to do afterwards. Uh, Intriguingly enough, we're just starting a, 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 a privately funded or charity funded project on green steel Ukraine. And what we're trying to, to figure out in the next six to 12 months is how you can actually make steel in a green way by using hydrogen fuel or, and using other techniques which do not involve you burning coal. And if that is the case, if, if that, you know, if it's feasible economically to produce uh, Ukraine's main export, after grain, which is iron steel. If it makes, if if we can find a way of doing it, a better way, the greener way, then of course uh, we could probably start rebuilding some of the cities like Mariupol, after liberation, in a new way, uh, around an industry that is not polluted and is not actually destroying the environment in a much more, uh, you know, intriguing and a better way. So I think we, we've got to think about not just building back but building back better and, and also building very new things because it doesn't really make sense just to rebuild things that existed before. And I think the the, 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 the research of Japan, uh, those cities that, that rebuilt exactly have everything that, that was destroyed are not the cities that look very successful. And those cities that try to manage downsize, right size, quote unquote, uh, those cities and, and try to use kind of a new way Uh, new perspective uh, they they, they are much more successful uh, than than the rest. So I think we need to learn from those kind of devastation uh, from devastation in in East Asia and some of those lessons I'm I'm sure we can apply uh, to potential recovery of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, one of the things that came up earlier with Dr. Quilliam was the idea that you know, the suggestion that economic success in a city, for example, pushes that city closer towards uh, a better democracy or a better democratic, because economic well-being in the middle classes allows people access to democracy, and they're not really as accepting as um, of autocracy to a certain extent. But in a destroyed city, in a war-torn country, in a country that has been destroyed by conflict, you know, and there are countries like China, for example, that have driven a coach and horses, as he put it, through the idea that economic prosperity leads to greater democracy. How do you counteract that problem of who takes over when the Ukraine is, is, is literally destroyed? You know, how do you, how do, where do you start from? What's the government structure? Because, you know, people, it's very, very difficult for people to accept that kind of democracy when they, when they don't have basic stuff like electricity or water or, those kind of things.
1: Yes. Yeah, so on so, well, on the plus side in Ukraine, you, you do have a functioning government, so it's not a failed state. So you, you do have the, the the institutions in place that that have survived the the initial onslaught and have survived even the occupation, you do have still uh, the local authorities in exile, sort of the mayor of Mariupol is still on, on, on Twitter, tweeting about stuff. Uh, so he, he, he was democratically elected and then obviously quite quite following the story still because he obviously uh, got his intelligence sources on the ground. Uh, so you have some institutions to, to kind of fall back on. Uh, obviously, there been a lot of discussion on, on, the, on the military administration side, especially for the for the places which were captured by the Russians eight years ago. Yeah, I think those th- are the places like Donetsk, like Luhansk, like Crimea, those are the places where your question probably is much more pertinent, much more relevant, because this is a place that I haven't had any democracy uh, for the last 80 years. I have quite a heavy, you know, Russian totalitarian rule for 80 years. There is no legitimate government there. No one got elected. Uh, our people got elected uh, are not alive anymore, unfortunately. So it, it is in places like Donetsk, Luhansk and Crimea where you would have to presumably have something alongside what what the Allies did in the Second World war with Germany Austria Italy if you remember that they had ten years ten years of, 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 of occupation by the allies uh, in which there was a process of, of denazification and kind of um, you know get, getting people to understand how how life uh, should be so so I think in in those kind of um, previously captured territories, so to speak, you will have probably to, 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 to go through a particular process of, of, of non-civilian
2: rule for some period of time. It was an in, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because even up as far as maybe 1956, Italy was still struggling with the idea of trying to embed a democracy into a, into a society that had broken down after that. So, you know, in reality, if you look at it from an international relations point of view, is there any prospect at all of Ukraine, for example, ever getting Crimea back? Uh,
1: well, I think, I mean,
2: war
1: is unpredictable. That's, that's definitely, that's 100% true. Uh, so we don't know what, what's going to happen. Uh, it is, I think all, all geographers looking at the map will see that Crimea is in fact an island, not yeah. really. It is a peninsula technically, but there's only two little bits of land. Uh, that attaches to Ukraine, and effectively, and one, dodgy Bridge that attaches yeah. to Russia now. Uh, so I think, strategically speaking, it will not be as difficult uh, to uh, liberate or recapture or seize than the Donbas itself, that has a very long land border with Russia through which a lot of troops have already been moving for eight years and and they've set up all the all the bastions and all the kind of military installations there so a lot of I think people a a lot of soldiers medium uh, ranking officers I I hear uh giving interviews they they reckon the Crimea probably is actually easier uh to retake than the Donbass which which is more populated and also quite quite urban and as we know urban warfare is is, is the most difficult part. Yeah.
2: So in terms of your understanding of how this plays out eventually, obviously, Putin is not immortal, we hope, obviously, but he is not going to be around forever. How does it play out after Vladimir Putin is, is, is essentially defeated? Because that's really, in terms of his war objectives, he's not really going to achieve those. So it ends in a defeat either way. So what happens next? Who's in, who's in line to take over? Who, you know, does this continue? Does this aggression towards Ukraine continue?
1: Thanks, Paul. And, and I promised this to your students and I didn't have chance to speak about these three scenarios of defeat, right? So I think I'll use this opportunity now. Excellent, yeah. To talk about, to, to talk about this. So I, I think a lot of the, you know, what happened after what, the, the end game, so to speak, a lot of it hinges on the manner of the defeat. So my first scenario, is, is say is kind of a chaotic retreat. So we can we can imagine a, a striking, a very successful Ukrainian offensive on one front towards the south, towards Crimea, or maybe multiple fronts. Uh, using, you know, these, these superb Western armor tanks and infantry and, and, uh, uh, fighting vehicles that Ukraine is just getting now. Uh, and, and and if that is a sort of lightning offensive is successful, that could lead to the collapse of the front line, and that would, would lead to sort of chaotic uh, retreat of Russian forces in some parts of it. But that obviously will also cause a massive panic amongst the Uh, My calculation is 600,000 Russian settlers. There are 600,000 Russian. Uh, Post annexation uh, settlers that came to Crimea from Russia from 2014 onwards. And those people are the first ones to run away, of course, with the Ukrainian forces uh, advancing. Uh, and also, Russian collaborators in the Donbass will try to escape. So, the chaotic retreat, people trying to escape, as I said, uh, Crimea only connected uh, through, through you know, one and a half bridge or one bridge which is semi functioning. People will try to flee. And that will obviously, this kind of rapid frontline collapse, uh, will, will force quite a lot of changes in Moscow very rapidly to proceed. And I presume in this case, in this scenario of, of, of chaotic retreat, the Sloviki, the, the, uh, the kind of the, the power elites around Putin, people from, from the security service, some of the military, but primarily the FSB, the ex-KGB kind of people who, 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 who Putin surrounded surround himself with, uh, they will try to push him out of power fast. He will not be able to, to to deploy any nuclear weapons because in chaotic retreat people be, you know nobody's going to obey uh, crazy order like that. so I think this is the first scenario in which uh, things could happen This could happen, and that would, as I say, would lead to, uh, to, to quite uh, quite dramatic change in, in Moscow. Uh, my second scenario is, is sort of uh, similar to the the end or, or the, the last days of the Russian Empire during the first world war. Uh the six sixteen seventeen, nineteen six sixteenth nineteen seventeen, the the Russian army kind of did not collapse but but through the kind of very uh heavy attrition of warfare which continued for a long time, the mobilized soldiers they were poorly equipped, poorly supported, you know, they spent months and months in muddy called trenches uh, and, and if that continues and the increasingly accurate Ukrainian sort of barrages and artillery, they will start deserting. So it's not a kind of chaotic retreat, but it's a desertion and kind of loss of morale. And that would lead also to, to collapses of some parts of the front, Not maybe not the whole, whole front, but some bits of the front will start to sort of uh, collapse. And and, and and unlike the first scenario of chaotic conflict, I think this is a much slower, and less sort of a dramatic situation. And, and this is where Putin might might try to, to plead for ceasefire, for sort of short-term settlement on almost any, any terms. So he'll try to, to preserve his, his power and his life, obviously, but we'll have a little bit of more time to kind of uh, desperately try to try to seek a ceasefire. Once again, I think no nukes will be deployed in this case because you know, soldiers will be deserting and, and, and there'll be no army left to, to utilize an opening that a nuclear strike could make, so no you know, no soldiers running through that through that gap, uh, and domestically Putin probably in this scenario will, will will agree to step down gradually and make space for a for a for a successor for a new leader, uh, and and provided that Siloviki this this power entourage will give him immunity from, from prosecution, so my second scenario my final scenario is sort of the war raging on for 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 another year now two years kind of longer period attrition uh, sanctions are, are increasing. There is ever-growing discontent at home. Some Russian forces retreat. Some Russian forces hold the front line, but but because of kind of economic pressure and social uh, kind of pressure at home, the economic financial elites will join to join the Soloviki, this power, uh, the KGB officers, and try to negotiate a kind of a deal with Putin. Uh, you know, let, let's, let's declare a victory now, let's sort of say this is, this is what we've captured, this is, you know, we, we won the war, we're standing up to the best, we haven't lost, we're defending Motherland, uh, and, and, and try to push the button to the designated successor uh, in a kind of a much more uh, sophisticated, you know, transition period, and in which, of course, Putin in this scenario will have most bargaining power and most chances to save his life. So those are my kind of three basic scenarios for, for the end game on, on kind of on the Russian
2: side excellent there's a couple there's a couple of things there the first one would be uh, Tim Marshall spoke earlier on he was talking about a uh, President Xi from China who's obviously just finished his three day visit um, and then Uh, is leaning on Zelensky and leaning on Putin to be the person that mediates that deal and basically puts Putin as the junior partner in that and then repositions China in the global context as being the kind of hegemon there and saying look we're controlling this and we can we are now a power that can broker peace in Europe um, as as an option and that I suppose that's an interesting thing I I wanted to ask your opinion on I'm not because I'm not sure about that thesis myself, but I'd like to know your opinion on that. And secondly, in a chaotic defeat in your in your first scenario, how do we prevent a kind of a MacArthur in Korea type scenario where the Ukrainians push into Russian territory? Because that surely would just galvanize, you know, Russian and Russian support for what is happening. So how do you kind of in a chaotic defeat, it's going to be very difficult to control, to say, look, right, we're stopping here. Um, because there's obviously going to be an element of trying to secure that space in, in the opposite direction, if you like.
1: And, and I've heard a lot of discussion amongst Ukrainian military strategists saying that some particular routes to victory are better than through Russian territory.
2: Yeah. That,
1: but that, that is not the way of, of describing it as, as capturing Russian territory and holding on to it. I think there, there may be some some incursion, some intrusion, some manoeuvres on the front line that, that involve sort of... Enveloping, Russian yeah,
2: encirclement, for example, like yeah.
1: To, to encircle people. If if there is a Russian garrison in mariupol holding on, I'm afraid, as Russians did, the only way to envelop is to from from both sides. But one side is actually going through Russia, currently as currently stands. So so you, you you might you might presume some some situation maybe maybe like that. But 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 you know the troops can retreat. I think there is obviously no no interest in in Ukrainian uh, armed forces to to you know no 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 means no, no, to invade Russia, but. Uh, Nobody's going to all the way to Red Square uh, to parade there, so that's, that's definitely not, not not a scenario um, we're dealing with. On Xi Jinping, I think the, I, I, I've been following, like yourself, probably. I've, I've been following this two-day, two and a half-day visit as close as anybody can. We've seen some footage. Some uh, the, you know, the, the the footage given to us by the Kremlin was quite revealing, I say. Uh, and, and the statements was quite revealing as well. Uh, uh, my the my situation, Paul, is that you could see now, obviously, to everyone, a very unequal relationship between Beijing and Moscow, in which the, the smaller weakening, death, you know, de- a smaller partner facing an accumulated defeat is obviously begging for anything that, that the bigger, stronger partner can provide, but the bigger, stronger partner is happy with 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 Russia being weakened and is happy with Russia to, to, to be giving them you know gas at seventy percent discount. I think we would love that. I mean it's a great you know, just imagine you're paying seventy percent less for your for your for your fuel bill. I mean that's, who would who would like that? Uh, so I think and, and, and even even the uh, you know oil, gas, all the natural resources uh, that that Russians are, are are effectively almost giving for free now uh, ha- trying to get some kind of help. But uh, as far as I could, could gather from, from, from just criminology and watching these videos, I couldn't see a lot of Chinese support coming, apart from the dear friend this and dear friend that and our internal friendship forever. Uh, I have, I, there was not a single announcement of anything tangible uh, from the Chinese side, which, mm. which, which seems, to, uh, seems to point out to the fact that the Chinese 12-point so-called peace plan Hasn't been really that successful in Moscow, uh, and 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 it seems to me that, that President Putin did not agree to most of that plan. However, one-sided and lopsided towards Russia, that plan is. Even that plan is is too is too big uh, a compromise for him. Uh, Bishanov, leave us, you know, leave us. Well, I mean, his his personal state of mind and how realistic he is. Well,
2: I mean, I, I suspect. It's very easy to put together a 12-point peace plan and nobody knows what the 12 points are. It's very kind of President Wilson at the end of the First World War kind of territory. It's just, you know, it's like, I have a peace plan. What is it? You don't need to know the details. So it's very, good you know, plan. It's a, it's a yeah, good it's plan. a good plan. It. It's a good plan, obviously, yeah. but having a twelve-point peace plan and being the senior partner—that's that's what's in it for China. That's they. That's all they want. They're not. They don't really have any interest in solving the problem in the Ukraine at all. I. I that's my reading of it. I don't know, what, you know, what it looks and, and, like. And
1: you might, you might argue that they have an interest in prolonging it. Yeah. Because it, it, it does weaken, obviously, Russia, and yeah. uh, at the same time, it does weaken the West in terms of just pure military calculus, because yeah. we, we are using all the ammunition that we have and sending it to Ukraine. We're using all the best equipment, sending it, well, some of it, sending it to Ukraine. Obviously, you ended up with, with, with kind of low stocks of no stocks, no inventories left. And that, that might, might benefit our potential adversary. Uh, somewhere in some way in East Asian Seas.
2: Yeah, like, brings, like, brings Taiwan into the China. picture, yeah. Brings Taiwan, yeah. South China Sea into the picture as well, which is, uh, yeah, interesting, to say the least. Um,
1: but Chairman Xi Jinping did not call President Zelensky, and I think that's the sign that that peace plan
2: is dead. Okay, yeah, no, I think that's probably that's probably fair enough, yeah. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I mean, I'd love to continue the chat, um, but I want to say, uh, uh, you know, a real thank you so much for the time that you've given to us this afternoon, and particularly to the students' questions, which was really appreciated. Um, and I know that they've learned a lot and taken a lot away from it. So, and I, I have too. So I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us today. So thank you for coming and uh, you know, hopefully we'll get in touch again soon. Maybe we can do this again next year and hopefully we'll have a resolution and some better news from Ukraine to talk about then. Yeah,
1: so hopefully rail strikes and bus strikes will be over
2: and we can travel <laughs> yeah. to Wellington College as well. I'd like to thank you as well for this opportunity. And also
1: just to say the student questions were very impressive, very hard and, and hitting questions, so, which I really enjoyed. And it's quite unusual for six formers uh, to, to be as, you know, in tune with, with the current situation as, as your students are. So uh, congratulations to them as well. and Thank you for this opportunity.
0: Thank you very much. To hear clips of the other speakers, along with interviews conducted by Paul Dunn to further explore their ideas, you can listen to the accompanying podcast on the Jukebox website.